you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Those are some fighting words right there. If you bring them up just about anywhere where you have Protestants and Catholics in the same space, or shall we call them papists, the Roman Catholic Church is not the only Catholic church out there. There's other versions or claims to being part of the Catholic Church, not just including the Lutheran Reformation. But the fight, the argument, and where we're going today is going to start with this very unclear text from Matthew chapter 16, right after, by the way, Peter has done something quite amazing. He has answered a question from Jesus that I think Jesus means every single human alive that hears it to answer. And that question is, who do you say I am? A great moral teacher, a clever guy like Buddha, maybe an angel like Buddha too. It's all the same, isn't it? Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. Others have lots of answers, including Jeremiah. I don't know where that one came from when he's coming back from the dead. But Peter finally says, I say you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the answer. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the hero. You're the king. Save us. That's where we would want to focus our journey in Matthew 16 normally is on that. The confession, you are the Christ. We also might want to focus on how easily after saying you are the Christ, Peter gets himself labeled Satan. Don't miss that. Get behind me, Satan. I actually think that's a mercy, by the way. It's not really Peter who Jesus is condemning. It's just who Peter's listening to, who Jesus is condemning. Get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of men, not the things of God. You want to talk about the Antichrist. You want to see how the Antichrist thinks he's going to have in mind the things of men, which is going to be sex, money, power, sex, money, power over and over again. He says, Peter, you're thinking about my kingdom being a throne with a sword, but I'm talking about how I'm going to die. So you're wrong. Now, in between that, who do you say I am? You're the Christ and get behind me, Satan. We have this little you are Peter thing, though, which is important to know what the Pope says about this verse. You don't have to like that I disagree with the Pope. I've had people tell me it's offensive when I talk about the Pope. Really? You know, offensive to talk about the Pope. Of all people, like, aren't we allowed to talk about somebody up there? The Pope. The Pope says this verse is about him and why if you don't submit to his authority, you're not in the true church. So whatever else you might think is going on, Catholics are supposed to believe you are Peter means you are the Pope and on the Holy Roman Catholic Church, I will build my church. That's what they're supposed to believe. If they don't believe it, then they're not good Catholics. And that doesn't make any sense because the only reason to be a Catholic is the Pope. Really? I mean, just like physically, at the end of the day, watch the money, follow the money. It all makes sense. Now, we don't think this is about the Pope. No Protestant ever has thought that Jesus said, you know, I'm going to reign in heaven, but I can't do it without you, Peter. But I'm going to kill you and make someone else like you take your spot. There's no prophecy of that except for that, see, there is. There's a prophecy of that. It's in 2 Thessalonians 2. It's not a good thing. Is the prophecy of the man of lawlessness. So we're not going to spend a lot of time for me to prove to you today that when Jesus says to Peter, 
Truly, on this rock, I will build my church. He wasn't talking about Peter. He was talking about himself and what Peter had just said. You're the Christ. And indeed, Hades' death did not prevail against that testimony. For we put him to death and he didn't stay dead, right? Hades doesn't prevail. The prophecy is already fulfilled. You can get into how the gates of Hades is also a place that the pagans used to throw away the babies they didn't want. It's kind of interesting. In Israel, it's a river spot with a big rock with a hole in it. And if you didn't want your baby, because abortion was dangerous, it was, was, abortion is dangerous. And so it's easier sometimes to have the baby and kill the baby. Now, I know you think that's unconscionable because you're pro-life, right? But like no one's pro-life except Christians and maybe some Jews and Muslims, but not all of them for sure. They're definitely not pro-life. I mean, you know, I just saw a video of a woman, a daughter, 17, being beaten to death in the street. I didn't watch it. I stopped it as soon as I saw it was there on Twitter. Beaten to death in the street as a, as a killing by her family, her own parents, because Islam says do it. So the idea of, of violence uh, in other religions toward humans is pretty normative in history and that we're shocked by it. We should be shocked and that's why we should pass good laws and vote for good kings. So they also protect us from those who are evil. In any case, the gates of Hades where they would throw their babies, this waterlogged place, Jesus says even that's not going to prevail against me and my kingdom. And keep in mind, this is the same king who then says, go into all nations, drown them with water in my name, and trust that that's sufficient to make you a disciple. The gates of Hades got nothing on baptism into Jesus Christ. Ah, All of that we're going to leave behind, though, to go to 2 Thessalonians, because that's where the arguments get more clear. If we're going to argue about who the Pope is as the man of lawlessness, it's not going to happen from Matthew 16. It'll happen from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where you have this prophecy from Paul that is weird. I mean, it's, it's not all over the New Testament. We don't have it in every book that we're given. Why is he saying it at this time? First and second Thessalonians are also very early letters. I believe James is early. Um, but for Paul's writing, this is the start of Paul. Paul writes these letters first. And he's kind of surrounded by conflict at the moment. They're not the most crafted of his letters. You'll find that by like Romans, like it's a thesis. <laughs> you know, this one's a little more offhand. He's kind of just saying it to the guy who's writing it as they go. And he's going to tell us this stuff about what God says must happen, right? So if you have your Bible, turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, because we're going to start at verse 1, not what was printed in the bulletin. You can use the bulletin at verse 5 and following. But we're going to look at this here, and we're going to track it then through a couple of other things to try to give you, in our time this morning, as broad a picture of whatever the Antichrist may or may not be as possible, so that you can make your own decision from the Bible what you think the Bible says, that's, that's my goal. And then I'll share with you, you know, I think it hangs together pretty well. Um, but, you know, we're going to deal with the book of Revelation. We're dealing with 2 Thessalonians 2. By definition, we're dealing with unclear things. It's just by definition unclear. Like you don't get to know. No one gets to pin the tail on the Antichrist and say, aha, I saw it coming. It's not how it works. Nah. The way that God's judgment works is that we repent and he saves us from what we didn't even see was about to destroy us. That's how, that's how he works. So 
2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1 says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you almost have to argue there. You would think everyone would believe in that, that Jesus Christ is coming back. Uh, you would think all the Christians would believe that. Most Christians do in some way. Believe it or not, there's a few who think he already did. We'll leave that for another time. It's a fun argument. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, with that, though, also, amongst those who do believe he's still coming back, you have a couple of very different groups. You have groups who believe that the nation-state of Israel and a rebuilt temple is necessary or Jesus can't come back. We're not in that group, by the way. But most Christians on TV are in that group, and a good host of the Republican Party actually is in that group, which is weird. Follow the money, I tell you every time. Follow the money. It'll tell you what's happening. We believe Jesus is coming back, but we don't need a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem to do that because the rebuilt temple is the body of Jesus that came back three days later. He came back once, and he's going to come back again to raise all of our bodies to be like his glorious body. And that will be, quoting scripture here, like a thief in the night. No one's going to see it coming. With an archangel shout, going to be really loud and obvious. It's going to be when we are caught up in the air to be with Jesus, what some would call the rapture, but nothing secret about it in the Bible and nothing after it except for the life of the world to come and the great white throne judgment. So that's what we believe. And if that was too much for one short day, don't worry if you didn't catch everything we believe in two sentences as I said it. That's okay. Uh, just stick with What's the Bible text say this morning now again? And there's going to be a coming of our Lord Jesus, right? He left, he's coming back, and our gathering, that's the word church, by the way, our gathering together to him, right? So this is at the end of time, Christ will return, and we who have been churched in these small assemblies around his word and his mysteries, we are going to be gathered into that great host that will sing with palm branches in our hands around the white throne, all right? He says, um, about this, we ask you, verse 2, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. That's like the first part, <laughs> right? So as we talk about the end of the world, rule number one, it shouldn't bother you. It shouldn't even begin to trouble you. Don't let any spirit or word or letter about the end of the world trouble you. It's a, it's a doctrine of hope. It's a doctrine of certainty, not fear. So he says, don't let yourselves be troubled as if a letter came from us as though, now here he says, the day of Christ had come. I mentioned already there are those who believe the day of Christ has come. I'm not going to even kind of uh, give them the credit to, to talk about their system. Um, but here... I mean, they would say, yes, he hadn't come yet, but he came now, right? That's, that's always how it works, you know. When Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour, he meant except me. <laughs> you know? And that's how they do it on TV. They'll sell you 15 bucks of, of more subscription to it, too, very quickly. Yeah? Uh, he says, the day of Christ hasn't come yet. And while you can make the argument that now we live at a time when he came, I think you got a, the burden of proof's on you to show that again. And the rest of the Bible is very clear. Like, it's going to go on from the beginning, like the days of Noah, until he returns and puts an end to it. That's Matthew 24, Matthew 25. It's very clear when he talks about how he's going to do it. So don't let anyone convince you, first, it already happened, or second, that you should be worried about it. You're supposed to watch. You're supposed to have in mind the things of God, not the things of men, but these are not spirits to trouble you. Huh? 
Let no one deceive you by any means, he says, for now, if you're looking in the New King James, it's one of the things I like about the New King James. It says that day will not come. And notice it's all in italics. If you got that, it's all in italics. Whenever you see italics in the King James, that means they're doing their best to help you understand the Greek. Because the Greek's probably just the word it right there. It. And so it is, in fact, referring to the day which Paul was just talking about that has not come yet, but Paul didn't fill in all of the English we needed to have it make sense. So just kind of notice that there. It's a nice facet of the New King James. You can see the actual Greek words, word for word, and you can see where the editors put in some English because English is a funny language. It really kind of is. So uh, let no one deceive you is his point. For that day, the return of Jesus will not come unless, and here's what has to happen first. And notice it doesn't say build a temple in Zion. It says, unless the falling away comes first. Unless the falling away comes first. So all talk about the man of lawlessness, and I would suggest to you all talk about the biblical Antichrist happens in and around what's called the falling away. The single word for this in history is called the apostasy or the great apostasy. He says this falling away will come and with this falling away, the man of sin or man of lawlessness, and it shouldn't matter which one you use because sin is lawlessness, direct quote from the Bible, um, until this man of sin is revealed, they call him the son of perdition, and then it tells you what he's going to do. Verse 4 who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember? He'll go on. But, but this there is the prophecy, okay? So that there is something Christianity is expecting to see in history, before Jesus comes back, and it is a great falling away of the church after a man who says, I stand in the place of God. Now, before the fall of the Roman Empire to the Vandals and the various hordes from the north, the Germans who finally did it all in, fourth century, up to and before the fourth century, there is no argument among any Christian preacher who this is. And then what in verse 6 says, he who is restraining it will do so, it's verse 7, until he is taken away. There is no question in their mind what was going to happen that would precipitate the falling away. And that was the collapse of the Roman Empire. All Christians believe this was a prophecy about what would happen after Rome fell. They didn't know how, they didn't know why, they didn't know where. But I can jump right from that to the Reformation, where if you're a Lutheran, if you're a Reformed, if you're a Methodist, it doesn't matter who you are unless you're so liberal you don't believe anything. Everybody thought it was the Pope. Everybody thought it was the Pope. Until 17, 1800s, now we get skepticism coming in, and everything's skepticism now. If you haven't figured it out, everything's skepticism now. Prove it to me. Right? But before that, there was just no question in anyone's mind that the one who took the church and caused the church 
to apostatize from being saved by grace through faith, sat in the office of the Pope and did so by saying, if you don't submit to me, you can't get to Jesus. I'm the only vicar of Christ there is. And to this day, Francis and all of his pedophilic trafficking that I do believe goes on in the global reality with the Roman Catholic Church sadly behind it, all of that still there doesn't change the fact that he stands in the seat of Jesus and refuses to say you're forgiven. That's what the Pope is still doing. And he's still saying, oh, I'm sorry, you can be forgiven. Just give me a little cash. Just give me a little cash. Stories from Africa. Baby's not baptized. Why? A Roman Catholic area. Why? Oh, he's got to pay. Just got to pay. It's a great, great scheme. When you get inside the church and convince all the people that giving your money here helps you, oh, man, I'll get paid well if I can do that. And that's where, so here's the thing, this man of lawlessness that everyone agreed was the Pope before a certain time, the thing is, while everyone agreed that the man of lawlessness was the Pope, they also called him the Antichrist. Which, if you'll notice, hasn't shown up in 2 Thessalonians yet as a text. Nor does Peter say, you know, on this Antichrist, I will reject my... You know, it, it, or does Jesus say that in the, in the Peter story? So where's that word Antichrist come from? And how does that become part of our mythology of the end of the world? And that's what I want to keep kind of pushing forward on here, a little bit away from the Thessalonians text. We're going to finish it, but I want to move past it. There's just a lot more that goes on. And again, we're dealing with unclear things. So don't expect it to be so clear. But then again, get behind me, Satan. It, it really is that clear at a certain point. It's truth versus lies. Finishing the text as written again, uh, verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So Paul tells the Thessalonians, I told you this was going to happen. It seems he thought it was going to happen sooner than later. Um, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. Again, the church fathers say that's the Roman Empire is the restraining factor. The only other argument ever put forward is this, the Holy Spirit or God. You see that in the King James, they capitalize he who restrains it. So God is restraining what? The man of lawlessness from taking over and saying he's God and we should be in his church and not in Christ's church. He takes over Christ's church. This mystery of lawlessness, which is the rejection of God, is already at work, he says, only, again, it's being restrained. Verse 8, and then once it's no longer strained, this lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one, whoever this is, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Miracles in the New Testament age accompany false teachers more than true teachers. It's a warning. It doesn't mean there are no miracles. It doesn't mean God never heals anybody. It means don't assume that because they can do magic, that they're good. <laughs> the lawless one with all these lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. So the issue here for me is twofold. One, I want to defend the position that if I'm an alien, and I land on earth, and I go, who's in charge of the Christians? There's going to be about 17 people that say me, right? And I'm going to look at them all and be like, yep, the Pope. Yep, he's in charge of Christianity. I mean, it's obvious, right? No matter what we think about it, 
That's what's still happening. And so to suggest that a guy who's potentially hiding the pedophilia ring, but definitely not teaching justification by grace through faith, to think that he's like good, this is really foolish. To think that the Roman Catholic Church is to blame for all of it is to miss the prophecy. He must take his seat in the actual true church if he's going to be the man of lawlessness. That's what the text says. Joe Biden cannot be the man of lawlessness because he's not taking his seat in the church. Okay? Now, here's the key, key, absolute key, and more key. It doesn't matter if it's the Pope because every church has the same warning and the same problem. And the moment that I start telling you to do something other than the Bible says, I'm the man of lawlessness now taking the seat in the church and preaching something other than Christ. The moment you would stand up and say such a thing, indeed, there are many antichrists, and we're going to get there. We're going to get there. But do notice that historically, it's unavoidable. The biggest man of lawlessness there ever was is evidently the bank of Vatican City. <laughs> follow the money. But now, let's, let's follow instead the antichrist for a moment, and I don't mean as though we were his disciples. Let's see if we can find that word. So, Treat. We're going to go through a big chunk of Revelation right now. Turn the pages just a little ways to Revelation chapter 12. And we're going to have some fun trying to pin the tail on the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. And dodging through it a little bit to kind of see, well, what we're up against. Because that's really what Paul's point is. As he's writing to this little Thessalonian church, what he wants them to understand is what Christianity is up against. It's not like everything is just going to roll up in a neat little scroll and we get to sit here until Jesus comes back, you know, collecting our olives and, and vines off our fig trees or whatever. I butchered that metaphor. But we are here in the middle of a war zone wherein light and darkness are in a cosmic battle that is taking place all around you if you will pull your head out of entertainment long enough to try to smell it. It's very evident that there are good places and there are bad places. There are good spirits and there are bad spirits. And we are born again as members of the body of the man who reigns over all that is good. What a place to be. Go sit down and just relax. You can stand up and see you're a member of the kingdom. And the kingdom is fighting against Satan. Right? Satan. So if we're going to talk about the Antichrist, we have to talk about what's behind the Antichrist, which is certainly Satan. Who's Satan? I could spend 30 minutes on how we have no idea. Like I can talk about all the ways that everything we think we know about Satan from the Bible is about someone else. Right? Lucifer? Yep, that was the emperor of, of Persia. Actually. So like, like it just on and on, most of what we know about Satan is drawn from us reading between the lines over time, and assuming it all works in an order that shows itself the same in Scripture. So what I'm going to do here now is show you how John knows this just as much, and so he gives you like a bunch of pictures of Satan in Revelation. And if you think it's just one or the other, you're going to spend all your time chasing the news cycle trying to figure out what's going on, when if you see the pattern, it's a very simple diagnostic for how not to get lied to by the devil, because he's always the one. So chapter 12 shows us this enemy of ours, this lawless one who's not a man, as a dragon. It says, uh, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. Uh, she represents the church 
as Old Testament Israel with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars. I think of the dream of Joseph. Uh, think also of just the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and she is with child. So ancient Israel bringing forth the Christ generation after generation until he was born among us. This is the Christmas story in the whole Old Testament. In one moment, she cried out in labor and was about to give uh, in pain to give birth. And now here's the other half, right? In a sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon in the Greek. You know it, dracon in the Greek, having seven heads, 10 horns, seven diadems. His tail draws a third of the stars of heaven down with him. And he stands before the woman ready to devour the child. She bears the child who will rule all nations with a rod of iron. And he goes up to heaven to God on his throne. And then the woman now we're on the other side of the coming of Christ. Now that woman's us, the church, the 12 apostles and the preaching going into the wilderness, the diaspora of the present age, where we are have a place prepared by God that we should be fed there. Well, there's some food. Uh, for 1,263, or excuse me, 60 days, that number, one of three ways, he refers to half of all time with numbers in, in the book, three and a half months uh, excuse me, three and a half years, 42 months, and 1,260 days are all the same period of time. They're half of seven, the seven weeks of Daniel. And again, I'm suggesting that Old New Testament, same reality, see the picture. Jesus is at the center. And who's fighting him? A dragon who wants to eat Jesus and can't. And so now he's going to go angry against us. That's what happens next. Now, we could keep looking at the dragon, but in chapter 13, the dragon's not alone. Although he is alone, because it's kind of like it's kind of like one of those Russian pop-up dolls. Oh, there's a nesting dolls. That's what they're called, right? You open up, and there's another one inside, another one inside, another one inside. That's sort of how the the devil, the man of lawlessness, works. So, in chapter 13, John stands on the sand of the sea, and he sees a beast rising up out of the sea. So we have a dragon cast down to earth, and we have a beast rising up out of the sea. And you can spend a lot of time trying to think that they're different. Or you can realize it's the same game the whole way. It's just a different framework on how to understand how the devil works. Same devil. Same devil. Now, this beast out of the sea is not the only beast. In chapter 13, verse 11, you're going to see, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. There you see the nesting doll effect taking place a little bit. These beasts are all connected to the prophecy of the beasts in the book of Daniel, which is all connected to the rise and fall of, wouldn't you know it, the Roman Empire. Okay, And then its continuation after it falls as a singular beast out of the sea. That is, from across the Mediterranean, Rome continues to work uh, in John's day for the devil. It shouldn't surprise you. It's a pagan empire. What should surprise you is when this other beast out of the earth comes and joins the Roman Empire, and this one talks like the dragon but looks like a lamb. Uh, the short story here is this is the so-called synagogue of Satan. That's a Johannine term as well. This is the religion of Judaism. It talks like it's for God, but it speaks for the devil. And that is coming out of the land of Israel, out of the Holy Land, to join forces with the beast, who, by the way, in verse 11 and 12, don't miss it, 
um, 12, the, the, the beast out of the earth. He exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs, here they are again, false teachers have great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth at the sight of the men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted. Uh, there's verse 15 is what I wanted to jump down to. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. In 2020, it was that verse that made me think about my TV differently. Think on it. It's the same devil playing the same game. However, the talking image works out. Again, you have a combination of church and state, synagogue and Rome, church and state combining to attack the faith as the dragon chases the woman into the wilderness. Verse 17, or excuse me, chapter 17. We go a little while here, and there's a lot that goes on with the censors. And I mean, Revelation, we could spend forever in the book. Um, but in, in chapter 17, guess what? Dragon's back. Beast is back. Only now Beast is under a woman. Uh, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked to me saying, come, I will show you the judgment of the great Harlot's such a nice word for whore. It really is. But, but you know, you, you, the theme of the text here is not to be nice to this woman. This woman's going to deserve everything that she gets. Come, let me show you the judgment of the great whore who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made to drink with the wine of her fornication. This is the devil. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. Sounds like the dragon, sounds like Rome, but it's different and this woman's on top of it. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of horrors and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. There's your devil. We'll see the devil in the Bible there. There she is. I don't maintain that the devil is a woman. I would suggest he's neither male nor female and a bit jealous of us both. It's part of his problem is why he doesn't want male or female, and he hates the image of a father. But here he is, demeaned to nothing more than a whore on a dragon with a bunch of people still following. That's kind of the trick. She's leading a great party. It's a raucous event all the way to the end. Those who follow her do not know that death dwells under her bed. For a little Proverbs reference, it's not over yet. Chapter 18. The devil shows up again, only now it's getting clearer. The light is dawning. And again, if you don't know how to read the book of Revelation, you read it like a blueprint from the end of the world, it's hard to see this stuff. You get caught up in what's happening in Israel, and it doesn't matter. 
What matters is that we know that behind the powers of this world, both civil and religious, is the dragon, and that he hates Jesus of Nazareth. We know this, and we know that he is after this throughout history. So now, verse 18, chapter 18, verse 1, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out mightily with a loud voice, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated birds. For all the nations have drunk on the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. <clears throat> Come out of her, my people, is the next thing he says. So now the dragon is a city. It's the city. You say, which one? I say, all of them. Even the ones built by Christians, eventually. This is part of the journey we have through history as Christians is that we come out of the evil and build good and then the evil follows us. And because we forgot, it tears down what we built. And then we come out of the evil and build good again. But it means that the city of man is never going to be the city of God as it should be except for when we assemble around the clear and present preaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the atoning sacrifices of blood, which we're doing right now today. So we are the city of God now, as great as we will ever be, shining like the sun with rainbows around our heads and angels in the air around us right now. But we live in the city of man, which right now is on the downslope from having tried to be the city of God from the 1500s to the 1800s. And we're on the downslope again of rejecting everything that was built before which means that no matter what you say to your TV or computer, the kids growing up in downtown Rockford aren't going to remember what it was like. And they're probably not going to have the skills to do much more than buy whatever their check says from Walmart. If they're able to get a check by any work at all, they'll be happy to do it for free or to just steal. Because again, once God is removed from the equation, we are in fact animals. And we will act like animals. So to see that the city, politics, if it is not the city of God, will be the city of man, increasingly filled with evil, which hates Christianity and likes to kill babies for a wide variety of reasons, that we must expect not only to be here, but we're not allowed to sit on our hands and say it won't bother us. It won't get to me. It won't come here. You either have to come out of her, my people, which means if it's so bad in your neighborhood right now, then indeed come out and send a missionary back. Would that we had the gumption to fund missionaries to the cities without them having to look over their shoulders. But, but that said, as a Christian, it's not your job to stand there and fight that battle. It's your job to rally to a place where the assembly is strong so we can send young men who are foolish enough to give their entire life to preaching the gospel in the inner city. Now, that's what we need. Huh? We need us to believe what we believe 
and hold to it firmly, even when neighbors and friends around us go, well, it's kind of weird, or they try to shame you with what they learned from the talking image. The city, though, will always become an enemy. It will. It will. And then God will destroy it. He will make it like Shiloh every time. Why? For the sake of the innocent blood. You know why I like Rockford? Why I think it has a chance to survive the downfall, uh, the downfall of the United States of America if and when we fall? And again, I don't know, and nothing, right? But we could. And if and when we fall, you know what Rockford has? It has like 30 years with no abortions. Show me other cities that did that. Show me other cities with Christian populations that shut it down in Illinois. Now it's back with federal funding. It's the only way they can do it is to force it in. But that said, Rockford's got some heart for Christ. It's got some heart for life and some heart for truth. And I think that that innocent blood that wasn't shed, it wasn't shed, cries out to God. The innocent blood that was shed and is being shed with the pills they're selling down on 611 now, well, that cries out to God too. All of this is to say the city is ours for the repenting. Understanding that the city is how the devil does it. He says, come out from your home to a place where I have more stuff at a better price and you will be like gods. And every time the city eats itself in the end. Now, we're not done. Chapter 19 gives us some exciting news. Verses 19 through 21. It says, I saw the beast, the, which one doesn't say, <laughs> I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathering together to make war against him who sat on the horse. That's Jesus on the great white horse with the sword of the word of God in his mouth. Uh, and, um, and against his army, that's us, the church. And the beast was captured and with him, the false prophet who worked signs in the presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. So what happens is suddenly Jesus shows up, and things start to, again, fall. The part about the city, the angel said, it's fallen. It's fallen. You can't stop it, right? And, and by the way, back up for one big moment. The thing that's fallen is earth and the universe. All the cities are just small pictures of it happening in time. But earth is fallen and is going to be restored. While the wickedness is thrown into the fire, earth shall be redeemed. So the first thing that happens here again is these beasts, these powers of stories that convince you to trust them rather than God, they're thrown into the fire in chapter 19, verse 19 and 21. In chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, the same thing's going to happen to Satan by name. And we can get into the thousand years. That takes a whole nother hour to talk about thousand years. When the thousand years have expired, Satan was released, will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. And oh my goodness, Ezekiel, Gog and Magog, what a story and what a mystery. Uh, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them 
was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Second mention of lake of fire. Beast is there. False prophet's there. Now the devil's there. Where the beast, the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's hell. It's Gehenna, right? Um, I'm going to keep going because more, more is getting thrown into hell still. Um, but I don't want to miss, there are, there are really two ways to look at this Gog-Magog event. One is that it's going to happen around the city of Jerusalem right before Jesus comes back. That's kind of what I was talking about earlier. Like you need the temple rebuilt and all this other stuff. The other one is that it's what I was just saying. Gog and Magog is one more version of the beast out of the land and the beast out of the sea surrounding the camp of the saints, that's the church, to try to silence us. They want to silence us. It has nothing to do with holding the fortress city of Jerusalem and everything to do with getting Christians to shut their mouths about things like marriage and children and what it means to not have fathers for children in the city. We must speak about these things again. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire. That's 27 to 10. He's not the last enemy. Go to 2014 to 15. Then death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. I think the lake of fire is the second death. Hell is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Oh, them too. <laughs> right? Uh, who goes to hell? The people who are not written in the book of life. Who gets written in the book of life? Anybody who wants to. Come to the waters. It's free. Uh, be baptized. You're in Jesus now. Right? Believe it. You're in Jesus now. You're in the book of life. Anyone who doesn't have that, again, goes into the fire along with death and Hades. Death is personified as a being here or as a thing that God destroys, and Hades also personified. This is like a reference to Greek mythology. What do you do with it? Again, we could argue about it. He's meaning everything you could imagine about what happens after death, every story about after death, all of it's going to hell. All of it's going to hell. Right? Only those whose names are written in the book of life come through this because the devil and all those who want to be with the devil are going to be in everlasting torment and fire. Again, so death is defeated, and then from here in the book, Christ reigns. But we're trying still, with just a few minutes left, to talk about the Antichrist. And have you noticed that from 2 Thessalonians, through the entire book of Revelation, I've never mentioned the word. I have not said Antichrist with reference to the text yet. So whoever wants to talk about the Antichrist doing this or that from the book of Revelation, just know before they start, they made a jump. They made a big jump. Same goes for man of lawlessness. Why would you assume that the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians is the Antichrist? It doesn't say so. It says he's the man of lawlessness. Now, I actually think he is, and it is, and it's all this office thing, this power in the church to hate Jesus that the Pope is the biggest picture of. It makes sense, Okay. Yeah? Uh, but that said, the office of the Antichrist, by name, has not been mentioned. For that, you've got to go to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. It's just a little ways before Revelation. And to really put the exclamation point on the point, like the term Antichrist exists. It exists because John coins it. It doesn't exist before John writes 1 John and talks about the Antichrist. And the same guy writes the book of Revelation and doesn't use the word once. And we all just assume it's the same thing. I call that bad scholarship. 
It's just stupidity is what that is. Right? Now, I think there is a connection to it all. Like I said, Satan's behind it all. But if we want to talk about who the Antichrist is, we really got to go to 1 John. That's the only place it talks about the Antichrist. And here it is, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not Hear us. By this we know the spirit of the truth and the spirit of error. And I did not make a note. So now I am looking for the other verse that I still want. Goodness, if someone knows where many antichrists is, just shout the verse. Mm. These are the worst moments. Now I'm sweating. Oof. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Saving my, my patootie. Um, turn to 218, because I want to run this through. I should have gone here first and run into four. Um, uh, little children is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, perhaps the man of lawlessness has become called Antichrist in the time since Paul wrote the letter. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Okay, so with that little confusion moment, the major point to take out of John is that John says, Antichrist is coming. Antichrist denies Jesus came in the flesh. There are many. There are many. So again, if I'm an alien and I look at the planet, it looks like the Pope's doing this pretty well to me. It really does. But it doesn't mean that somebody who runs a mega church somewhere else in the country and never really talks about Jesus isn't also the Antichrist. They, in fact, are. And if their church prides themselves on miracle working and healings, oh, man, watch out. Watch out. Follow the money again. Pin the tail on the Antichrist. Where is he? Who is he? The threat is the devil. The threat is the angel which fell, who convinced us to serve him according to his lies and his stories are still being repeated by us by nature, which means if you do not fill yourself with the word of God, you will naturally come up with a story that attributes everything to the devil. And whether that ends you in arrogance or despair, it definitely ends you in a pit of fire at the end of time. And the great good news of God is that he thinks that sucks and doesn't want that for you at all. And so he came and died on the cross so that you 
you will live forever and it's free and no one has to pay for it. You don't have to come to my church to get it. You don't have to tithe to have it be valuable to you. It is a fact of his proclamation. The word itself is sufficient. And if you have doubts, get the water. The water on your body is a covenant, a guarantee. And the food that we eat is a supplement, a sustenance to convince you that your body, your body is Jesus now. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to him. He doesn't plan to crush you. He doesn't plan to smother you. He's not going to throw into a lake of fire. He's going to build you. And you're going to be built up. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.